0: Would you open your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 15? 1 Corinthians 15. Biblical doctrine motivates right living. Biblical doctrine motivates right living. If you believe God's word and the doctrines contained within, it will move you by the grace of God to righteously live. If you believe God's word and the doctrines within, it may even lead to you giving your life for the sake of the gospel like a pastor named John Philpot. In 1553, Queen Mary ascended to the throne in England. She was known as Bloody Mary because when she ascended to the throne, she went on a killing spree. She imprisoned, she exiled, and then she even killed, executed, many ministers of the gospel and other believers in Christ. Queen Mary was a Catholic, and she was determined to force England back to the Catholic church. Church. So she demanded that those of the Protestant faith should recant their faith, or otherwise they would be burned at the stake. And her target were on the minister's, the pastors in those churches. History records that some pastors recanted to save their own skin. History also records that at least 300 pastors did not recant. They stood firm on God's word and on the truth of the gospel. They were brought into the public square. A fire was lit and they burned alive. One of those pastors was named John Philpot. December 18, 1555 was the day for him that he stood at the stake. The fire was ready to be lit. 18 months previous to that, He had the queen's guards come by his church and pull him out and put him in prison. And for 18 months, they tried to convince him to recant, but he stood firm. And finally, he heard the day when he was going to die. And he said this I am ready. God grant me strength and a joyful resurrection. And so he was marched to that stake, that actually uh, history records that he kissed the wood, was chained up, the flame lit up, he began to roast, and as he did, he quoted Psalm 106, Psalm 107, Psalm 108, and he was burned alive. Psalm 106 says, praise the Lord, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. Can you imagine as he stood in that fire and he said, his love endures forever beyond the grave and what was his hope it was in a future joyful resurrection i would say it like this his doctrine of a future resurrection resurrection motivated him to go to that stake and to give his life for the gospel however there were some pastors who recanted and why did they recant Well, I would argue it was a doctrinal problem. You see, your doctrine determines your practice. What you believe determines how you are going to live. Evidently, these men who recanted their belief in Christ, or at least belief in the Protestant faith, and faith alone through Jesus Christ, they believed that this life and their body was more valuable than the next life and the resurrected body. They loved this world, they loved their lives so much that re- they rejected their Lord, and they did not live in the hope of a future resurrection. Your doctrine motivates you to live. And biblical doctrine motivates right living. First Corinthians 15, 29 through 34 teaches. That's our text here this morning. And really the big idea of verses 29 through 34 is that the doctrine of bodily resurrection should motivate you in how you view the lost and how you minister to others and how you guard your own spiritual life. The doctrine of bodily resurrection should motivate you in three areas, how you view the lost how you minister to others, and how you guard your own spiritual life. Paul introduced this doctrine of resurrection back in chapter 15, verses 1 through 11, when he gave the gospel. And he said the gospel is the good news that God saves through saving faith in Christ. Remember that? Based upon the saving work of Christ. What's the saving work of Christ? Christ died, he was buried, and he... Rose again, his resurrection. So he started talking about that in verses 1 through 11. But there were some in the church who, yes, they believed the gospel and that Jesus was resurrected from the tomb, but they began to be influenced by the pagan culture, and they began to be influenced that they didn't have a future resurrection for themselves. So they stopped believing that their own body would have a future resurrection. So in verses 12 through 19, if you look at verses 12 through 19, you can remember that Paul countered that fallacy, and he actually demonstrated the devastating effects of denying the doctrine of resurrection. And then in verses 20 through 28, Paul showed, on the other hand, that Christ's resurrection actually put him on the throne. He's the king of kings, and actually it ensures our future revelation, uh, resurrection And then now in verses 29 through 34, Paul will apply this doctrine to our everyday life. In other words, how does the doctrine of a bodily resurrection, how does it affect you when you go eat this afternoon or when you go to work tomorrow? How does it affect you as children as you go to school throughout this week? Like this doctrine should have an impact upon your life. When you really grab hold of this truth, that this life is not all there is, There's a life to come. Your body will be resurrected either to life everlasting or to eternal contempt. When you grasp onto that truth, it will change how you live. It will change how you spend your free time. It will change how you parent. It will change how you operate within the church. Your doctrine, what you believe about God and about his work will affect how you live every day. So Paul is teaching here. And he's talking about these three categories in fact, if you look, look down in verse 29 through 30, I want you just to observe this in these verses. So I'm going to do an overview of these verses here and observe these three categories of your life that doctrine affects. Look at verse 29. Notice how he uses, for you grammar students out there, he uses the third person. He says, what do people, what do they? So he's looking at those who are lost. So the, the doctrine of resurrection affects your, your view of the lost, So, look at verses 30, 31 through 32. The doctrine affects how you serve the Lord. Notice he he goes to the first person pronouns. We are in danger. I die daily. So, in other words, he's talking about ministry in and through the local church. And then notice 34 and 30, or sorry, 33 and 34. Your doctrine affects your own spiritual life. Notice he uses the second person pronouns. You, talking to the church, you should not be deceived. You need to wake up. You must not go on sinning. So what Paul does here is he goes from the outside, those who are lost, those outside the church, to those around you in the church and also the ministry through the church, to that within you, and that is your own spiritual condition. And the point is, if you truly believe in the doctrine of bodily resurrection, it will motivate you in how you live your life in these three categories. So look at me with... Look with me at verse 29 through 34. I'm going to read it out loud. Would you stand with me as I read the scripture? 1 Corinthians 15, verse 29 through verse 34. The word of the Lord says, Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? We are, why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived." Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning, for some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Father, I pray that you will take your word by the power of your Holy Spirit and transform our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. The doctrine of resurrection should motivate you. First of all, it should motivate you to view the lost as ones with eternity in their hearts. God has made each person with an inner awareness that they will spend eternity somewhere. If you go to the remote jungles and you speak to those who have had no contact with anyone from the outside, you will find that many of them have religions and they believe in those religions that there's something that's going to happen after they die. In fact, if you go to the average funeral in America, I guarantee you one of the common phrases you'll hear is he or she is in a better place. You heard that? I mean, it doesn't matter what their religion is. Many people think that. They believe that. And, they, you know, you go to these funerals and they're talking about how they're going to be fishing somewhere and some, you know, I can imagine grandpa's fishing in the pond or whatever it is. And the, the point is, there is this hope. There is this longing. There is something that's pre-programmed by God within our hearts to know and desire something beyond the grave. And why is that? Well, Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God has set eternity in the human heart. It's like God has pre-programmed us with an inner consciousness that there is life beyond the grave. Paul indicated this reality in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 29. I believe in verse 29, Paul described the practice of some pagan religions that had some type of baptism for the dead. There are different views on this. We're going to talk about this in a moment. But I believe Paul used that pagan practice to demonstrate that even the lost, the lost people, those who are without Christ, have a sense that there's something beyond the grave. So therefore, the doctrine of resurrection should motivate us to, to view the lost as those with eternity in their hearts. So look at verse 28. Let's see this in this text here. Verse 29 says, otherwise, and you got to stop right there and ask why that's there. Well, that's there because he's pointing back to the topic that started in verse 12, which was what? Some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead. So you could say in verse 29 to help us out. Otherwise, if there's no resurrection of the dead, and then go on, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people being baptized on their behalf? This is a very difficult verse to interpret. I read, one person estimated that there's 150 to 200 different interpretations on this verse alone. Would you like to go through each one of those this morning? Me neither. So we're not going to do that. I'll tell you two things. I'll tell you one, what I know it doesn't believe, and then to what I believe it does mean, first of all, I know this verse does not mean that we should baptize living saints on behalf of those who are dead. This is not an instruction here that we need to go baptize people who are alive, people in our church, for people who have already died. How do we know that? Well, in verse 29, there's no command. There's no instruction to do so. Verse 29 is just giving an observation of something that was already happening. So notice in verse 29, there's no imperative that we should baptize, vicariously baptize for people who are dead. Now, let me note here that the Mormon cult believes this verse is teaching that you should baptize people proxy on behalf of dead people. So Mormons baptize with the belief That baptism is required to enter into eternal life. So they baptize Mormons. So grandma who already passed on or some guy who lived 500 years ago has a better chance at eternal life. But you look at verse 29. Verse 29 does not teach that baptism saves. Nor does it teach that the dead can be saved through a vicarious baptism. In fact, there's nowhere in scripture that teaches that baptism will save you from your sins. Baptism is a picture. Baptism is a symbol of what Christ has done for you. Christ died for your sins, was buried and rose again. Baptism is a symbol that the Holy Spirit has applied that to your heart. So baptism does not save. In fact, no work that you do saves you. You can't save yourself. You can get in some water up here. We can dunk you a hundred times. It's not going to do anything to you except get you wet. It won't take away your sin. The Bible does not teach that. So baptism does not save you. Then what saves you? Or I should say, who saves you? Christ. He saves you. And and what does he use to save you? Well, He saves you by based upon his work on the cross. So only Christ saves through his work. By the grace of God, when you believe. Now we do baptism and we call it believer's baptism. Why is that? Because after you believe the gospel, Christ commands you to be baptized. And so we do that after someone believes, believer's baptism. And you should be baptized. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you should be baptized. Number one, because Christ obeys or Christ commands it and we obey Christ. And number two, to testify that you have trusted in Jesus Christ's work. So here's a question for you. First of all, are you a believer in Jesus Christ? And if the answer is yes, have you been biblically baptized? And if not, let's put it on the schedule. Let's do it. Let's obey the Lord in that. So what does verse 29 mean? Well, my conclusion is the Bible was probably... Paul was probably referring to a pagan custom of baptism. Many pagan religions have ritual baptisms in their religious ceremonies, especially back at this time in the first century. So it's probable that some pagan religions back then were baptizing people on behalf of the dead, believing that vicarious baptisms help their dead ancestors. So if that's the case, and I believe it's the case, you might come to a different conclusion. As long as it's not the wrong one, that's okay. But if that's the case, then what Paul was doing was demonstrating that even the lost have a sense there's something beyond the grave. So look at verse 29. He says, what do people? So, so notice he doesn't say, what does the church or what do saints or what do you He uses the th- generic third person? What do Others, what do they, what do people, what, in other words, what, are the, what is the lost, those without Christ, what do they mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why? Why are those pagans doing that? Why are they Why are they baptizing? Why, why do they do something like that if they don't think anything happens after? So Paul evaluated the practice of pagans and demonstrated that they believed in some type of afterlife. So the doctrine of resurrection motivated Paul, to view the lost as those who have eternity in their hearts. So when he viewed them, he viewed them as ones who have a body that will die. And that body will be resurrected to everlasting contempt. Christ said that you will go into hell with your hands and your feet and your eyes. It's it's a physical, eternal torment. And when you look at people and you recognize that your family and your friends and your neighbors, like that's actually reality beyond the grave, it should motivate you to tell the gospel to them, right? And that, that's Jesus when he was on earth. In, in Mark chapter 6, the Bible says when he looked at people, he was moved with compassion for them. Why? Because they were as sheep having no shepherd. He saw them as lost. Have you ever been in a store and seen a little child walking around by themselves, And you look around, you don't see the parents anywhere. Like, what's your instinct? You're looking around, you're like, where are the parents? And you don't see the parents. What's your instinct? To go help that child because they're lost. I mean, they might not even know it, right? And I've done that a couple of times. We're like, do you know where your mommy is? You know, where your daddy is, you know, and go find them or whatever it is. Because why? Because you have compassion because you don't want to see a child get taken by someone else or something bad to happen to them. And church, that's the compassion that God calls for us to have towards those without the Lord. Do we really love people enough to view them as those who have eternity in their hearts and those who need Jesus Christ? When our family goes on a trip, we have a lot of packing to do. We have five kids, two parents, And the problem with going on a trip is that life doesn't stop for you to pack, does it? And so the question is this, do you pack days in advance or do you pack at the last minute? Now how many of you are days in advance kind of people? Like you're like three or four days, okay. How many of you like last minute, night before? Oh, the majority, okay. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing. I would be more of the person that would be like, we have to leave in an hour, let's throw something in the suitcase. Partly it's because I'm a guy. I mean, how much do you really need, really? But I'm thankful that I have an amazing wife who packs days in advance, or at least she washes the clothes and does all those things. And if I didn't have that, if she didn't help me prepare and all of us prepare, I'm convinced that I would be going on any trip like that with dirty, wrinkled clothes, and I would be unprepared. In other words, there's someone in my life that helps me prepare for the trip. Do you realize that you're that person in other people's lives? You are the person that God has put in that person's life to help prepare them for the trip. And what's the trip? It's eternity. Like if you live across the street from a neighbor, that person's going to spend eternity somewhere and you're supposed to help them pack. How do you help them pack? Give them the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think this is a, a good opportunity for us to consider this for those of us in here who are parents or if you are a grandparent. The most valuable resource that we have in the world today are children. And I know that. Scripture knows that. You know the world knows that. That's why they go into their schools and they teach what they do from the youngest of ages. And parents and grandparents and really church, you know, it's our job to, to prepare our kids for eternity. And how do we do that? We need to pack their mind with doctrine. Like doctrine determines practice, right? It's so important and vital for us to do that. It's putting God's word in their hearts, discipling them to teach, to, to discipling them with God's word, to read God's word, to meditate on God's word. And so, I'm going to do a shameless plug right now for True Trackers because we have that coming up in what two weeks. And the reason I'm passionate about it is not because I really want to come here with a bunch of kids on Thursday night. <laughs> It's because I really believe, I really believe that teaching those kids doctrine can change their life. If there are children who are coming that they don't know the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're giving them the gospel and they can be saved. And our kids are in here and they need doctrine. They need a right view of God. They need a right view of this world because they're not getting it from anywhere else, are they? Unless it's coming from our home, unless it's coming from this kind of place like this, they're not getting it from a a school system. They're not getting it from the books out there, from the movies out there. So it's our job to pack their minds with the truth of God's word. We are to be motivated to look at people as ones who have an eternity they're going to spend somewhere. And so our doctrine, or I should say the doctrine of resurrection, should motivate you To view the lost as ones with eternity in their hearts. But also to sacrifice for the gospel rather than just pursue comfort. Sacrifice for the gospel rather than just pursue comfort. Look at verse 30. Notice how Paul transitioned to speaking of how the doctrine of resurrection motivated him and other gospel workers. Verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? So Paul is talking about himself and his gospel workers, his gospel partners. They're walking from town to town, and every town they go into, they're threatened. Their, their lives are in danger. And notice he's not saying, man, we're, we're, we're nervous we're going to have a bad ministry year this next year. Like, the budget might be a little low. You know, the budget was $1.3 million last year, and people need to pull it in. It's going to be 1.2. You know, it's like it's going to be a difficult year. Like, no, Paul's literally waking up and going, I don't know if I'm going to live today or not. Like, I'm going to tell someone the gospel, and they might bash my head in with a rock. Like, that's the serious nature of this. In fact, look down in verse 31. You can see that. He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you. Like, I'm certain of this, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die daily. Paul was reporting that each day he was in physical danger. I mean, he knew that any day he could die. Acts records by Luke the historian that Paul would go into towns. He was beaten. He was mocked. He was falsely accused. He was shipwrecked at times. He was bitten by a viper. He was imprisoned. He truly lived with the expectation that ministering for the gospel might end his life. And yet, he continued to do so. Why would someone be that crazy? Because he believed that this life was not all there is, that this body is not the only one he gets. Even if it gets beaten and if it gets uh, murdered, there's another life, there's another body that will be resurrected to life. And he has that new body. He will have that new body someday. In fact, you can see that in verse 32. He says, basically, if I don't get a new body, why am I putting my body in danger now? Verse 32, what do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? Now, what is this talking about here? Well, Paul was writing the letter of 1 Corinthians from Ephesus only a couple years later. So it could be that they heard news in Corinth that Paul was in Ephesus writing this letter and they heard that there was some type of beasts that attacked him. So these could be animals. It could be that Paul walked into town and someone unleashed dogs on him. Or it could be these beasts are actual people. And so he's using these beasts as a metaphor for enemies. But either way, his life was in danger. His body was in danger. And he's arguing here. He says, it doesn't profit me to put my life in danger if there's nothing beyond the grave. Like, why do I want to suffer and die now if there's nothing that... It's going to happen to me afterwards if I don't have a resurrection of my body. Why did Paul suffer like that? Think about that. Why did he suffer like that? He expected to suffer like that. Well, 2 Timothy 4, Paul wrote this to Pastor Timothy. So here's here's Paul about to die. He's in prison. He's going to be executed soon. He's writing to this young pastor and basically saying, hey, Here's what ministry looks like for you. Okay, so you're gonna get this letter as a pastor. You're like, okay, I'm looking forward to my pastoral ministry here. Indeed, all who desire to live godly, to live a godly life in Christ Jesus, will be persecuted. Well, evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worst, deceiving and being deceived. How encouraging would that be as a young pastor? Oh, that's what ministries get to look forward to. But church, when When you do what's right, when you seek to love people by ministering the word to you, to them, I should say, it can turn out to be painful. It can be like trying to get a a thorn out of a dog's foot. You're trying to help the dog, but the dog bites you. Ministry in the church, ministry to the lost outside of the church can be painful at times, People can falsely accuse you. Friends can turn on you. There can be emotional pain. There can be relational pain, spiritual and financial pain, and physical suffering. I guess I said that physical suffering. Think about that. Is that really what ministry and what church is supposed to be like? I mean, aren't we supposed to be just a bunch of smiling people that are perfect? We come in here and you have your little perfect life and I have my little perfect life and we're like, Like, that's what the church is. And it's like, that person's not perfect, you know? (laughs) What's going on? Like, that's not church. That's a wax museum. And a wax museum is fake, right? (laughs) Those people are fake in there. The church is more like a combination of a spiritual hospital and a spiritual fitness gym in the middle of a spiritual war zone. Think about that. It's like you have the ER, And you have those who their lives need to be saved, so you apply the gospel. You have those who are recovering, those who are getting more healthy, those who are in the spiritual fitness gym, and they're trying to become more healthy and getting stronger, and they're applying the gospel and the scripture to their life, and they're growing spiritually. And in the middle of that, Satan is opposing you. He's coming against you. That's actually the reality of ministry and church. Now, you might hear that and might say, oh, that's kind of depressing. (laughs) Like, who wants to sign up to serve in a ministry at our church for that? Well, let me say this before I go on, and that is, I don't have this in my notes, but I was going, I'm going through the directory and and changing some things and trying to update some things, and I looked through it and I thought, I really love our church. (laughs) As I read through and prayed through the people that are in this room, and some of you aren't because you're at home for whatever reason, be sick or out of town or whatever, but I thought I really love our church, so definitely I'm not feeling this right now, okay. But just in general, it can maybe you can maybe think, Well, that's maybe not something I want to sign up for, but it's only true if your doctrine is that your life is meant to be lived in comfort and your life is to be lived for you. See, what happens when people come to a church and they realize there's people with problems. And, and someone talks about their problems, you know, the, the someone preaches on sin and they go, oh, that makes me feel bad. What, what they realize is they go, they go, well, I don't like that because I want to be comfortable. Like, I, don't, I just want to be happy. And, and here's the problem. They have a doctrine problem. What's their doctrine problem? They have a view of God that is not true. I would say it this way. They have a false God. You might call it the prosperity Jesus. And that's what, this is what the Christian church in America, this, this is who they worship. A false God. It's the Christian prosperity God, which is like this. It says, God exists to make me happy. I deserve to have all the things I want. Jesus came to this earth. He lived his life. He died. He rose again so that I can have money. I can have health. I can have 2.2 kids, the big house, the nice job. And if, if that doesn't happen, I'm not, I'm not going to be very happy about it. And so they come to a church and they expect... To be entertained. They don't want anyone to deal with any of their sins, or they don't want to deal with anyone else's sins. They expect the comforts of a first world culture. Like the temperature and the air conditioning's got to be just right, right? I mean, it's a little cold today. Oh, wow, it's terrible. You know, it's a little, I, the, the seats have to be just so comfy. The coffee was there. Coffee today? Oh, there was coffee today. Well, then I'm happy, right? Like we expect those comforts, and if not, sometimes that's maybe not meeting up to my standards. The music must make me feel just a certain way. I need short sermons so I can eat soon. <laughs> don't expect me to give him my time and time, and, and don't talk about giving at all. Like, in other words, the I'm coming, and I'm going to evaluate the church based upon. Are you entertaining me? Do I feel entertained? Do my kids feel entertained? And if, and if it's true, then that's a good church. If not, then, well, I don't know if it meets up to my standards. And why is that? Because most people in the American church believe in a God who's a God to fulfill their comforts. So notice in verse 32 how bad theology leads to that type of thinking, that indulgent, hedonistic living Look at verse 32. If the dead are not raised, if you take that doctrine of resurrection out, what's the result? So bad doctrine leads to ungodly living. Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we may die. Paul was teaching here, your doctrine, your view of God in life affects your practice. If the dead are not raised, if this is the best life you get, then... Let's live it up, right? I mean, what are we wasting our time here today for? (laughs) Let's go and somewhere else. Let's eat, let's drink. For tomorrow we may die. That was the philosophy, as the song says, that many have lived by. If you have that view of God and of this world, if this is all there is in this life, then live for your comfort. Your marriage is not doing well. Well, maybe you should just go ahead and get a divorce because, you know, you got to do you, you know, it's about your life being happy. If ministry is hard, just quit. If you have money, you got to spend it on you. Like, you know, my only got a little bit of money and a little bit of life, better live it up. If this is all this is, if this is all there is, I mean, what are we living in California for, right? I mean, let's get away from the liberals, Let's go get a compound somewhere and let's grow our own food and live off the land and have our chickens, right? Like, seriously, if this is all there is, we don't think about the resurrection or anything else. It's like, well, let's live for now. Like, what are we doing living for something else? And so you can see the unrighteous living is based upon false doctrine. And so what is God's call to us here? What is Paul telling us here? He's saying... You need to wake up. You need to realign your doctrine to the truth. The resurrection is true. There will be a resurrection someday for you. And so live in that reality. The doctrine of the resurrection teaches us that God has saved us, not just for this life, but for the life to come. Whoever loses his life for Christ's sake and the gospel, Jesus said in Mark eight thirty-five will save it. You lose your life for Christ and the gospel, and you save it. If you truly believe in the doctrine of resurrection, God's grace, therefore, will change how you live every day. It will cause you to endure hardship. It will cause you to go to difficult places and even maybe even give up your life for the gospel. You know what it will cause some of you to do, and many of you have? It'll cause you to stay in California. There you go. Shameless plug again. But I'm serious about that because I I know you probably hear this. I hear it because I have a lot of friends in South Carolina and they still talk to me. And honestly, constantly, and this past week I talked to one of them, constantly I'm hearing, I can't believe you live in liberal California. But see, if your mindset is that this is all there is, it's like, wait, didn't Christ tell us to go with the gospel? Like, isn't this where we're supposed to be? Because this is where those who are lost are. My my point is it's reorienting our minds to the doctrine of the resurrection causes us to live by faith in light of eternity. It will change how we live on a daily basis. Like If you truly believe in the doctrine of resurrection, it will change how you live at home. It will change how husbands, you come home, instead of coming home for me time, you're going to come home to serve my family time. It changes how you operate in the church. Instead of saying, man, I got Sunday, my hour and a half, and I don't know, this home group thing, I'm kind of tired. <laughs> like, I don't like want to take up that night for that. Or, man, 5 o'clock tonight, we have a, an evening service, an hour. That's a lot of time, an hour. And it'll, it'll cause you to say, sometimes I'm going to say, you know, maybe, the, maybe I'm willing to give up that hour for something that's more valuable than what I'm going to spend it on. And th- this is the mindset that Paul had. He wrote this to Timothy in First and Second Timothy 1.9. He says, I'm suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. Literally, like he was in a prison at that moment. But the word of God is not bound. Like that's his hope right there. God can change people's lives. Therefore, I endure everything, all the suffering we talked about. Why? For the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Notice how his eyes were looking beyond. It's like, I'm looking at these people and I'm ministering to them. I love them. And I know they're going to spend eternity someday somewhere. And I want to prepare them for that. So, the doctrine of resurrection should motivate us to sacrifice for the gospel. And then also, it should motivate us to guard ourselves from being deceived by those who influence with a wrong view of God. Look at verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right. And do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Notice in verse 34, he says, for some have no knowledge of God. Those are people who believe false doctrine. They have a wrong view of God. And notice the commands in verse thirty. And 34. There are three commands that Paul gives directed toward the church. Verse 33, do not be deceived. Verse 34, wake up from your drunken stupor. And then verse 34, do not go on sinning. So let's look at the first command. The first command, verse 33, do not be deceived. Let's ponder that. Let's think about that. Because when you read that, do not be deceived. Is your, automatic response is, is your automatic response, like, I think I'm probably deceived. Would you say that's your automatic response? I would say probably not. Because most of us read that right there, and I would say this is kind of how I read it. Just to be frank with you, I read it and I go, yeah, I don't think I'm probably deceived in this. But wait a second. If God is telling us this, and this is a warning that he gives to us, do you think maybe it's the opposite? Maybe we should read it. And when he says, do not be deceived, we go, oh, maybe I probably am being deceived in this, this area. Maybe I need to listen up and maybe ask God, God, would you show me if I'm being deceived in this area? So do you think maybe we should have that mindset when we see something like this? So let's do that when we go to this. Let's look at this and say, do not, do not be deceived. Okay, my heart is easily deceived. So Lord, am I deceived in this? Okay, in what regard? Do not be deceived. In what area? Bad company ruins good morals bad company here are those who teach false doctrine, those who have a a wrong view of God, and therefore they influence you with that wrong view of God, which therefore leads to wrong behavior. Again, what you believe, your doctrine determines how you live, your practice. So the warning here is this, that you need to be careful about those who influence you with their doctrine, which can cause you to have bad behavior. Bad doctrine leads to bad behavior. And so let's just talk about some practical applications of this. Let's talk about how we are influenced by doctrine. When you watch a movie and when you watch a TV show, are they teaching you doctrine? What do you think? You're like, well, I don't know, like, remember them talking about the Bible at all, but they are teaching you doctrine. They're giving you a worldview. They're teaching you about God, even if they don't mention God's name or if they do it in a way that's taking his name in vain. When you watch a movie, think about it this way, of an unmarried man and an unmarried woman who are intimate with one another, or you watch a show and there's a man who has romantic feelings for another man, are they influencing you with that doctrine. See, that, that is a doctrine that they have. What is the doctrine behind those scenes? Well, their doctrine is, God doesn't really care about sex outside of marriage. Their doctrine is that you can live however you want to. You can live as your own God. Do what you want. Maybe, maybe their God is the God of pleasure. Like, if it feels good, do it. She's attractive. You're not married to her. He's attractive. Just do it. If it feels good, follow your feelings. Obey the God of pleasure. Worship the God of pleasure. My point is, do you realize they're influencing you with that doctrine? Or when you watch cable news, or you listen to podcasts, or you read books, remember, they have a doctrine. And I'm not suggesting that we should live as a monk and not watch anything, not read anything. Actually, the opposite. I think we should actually be aware of what's going on in our world. But I'm, what I'm warning about, I think the scripture is warning us about, is the amount of influence from consuming that media. I think the, 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 the warning here is that you can be, are being influenced. And so if if what you're consuming is the majority of that doctrine, what what are you going to live like? How are you going to live? Doctrine leads to behavior. I guess I think about our children. I think about your children. I think about the children of America. Why are we surprised that children are growing up to believe like the world when they spend hours and hours each week being indoctrinated by the world? That's a real question that we have to ask ourselves. I'm talking about from the youngest, from a two-year-old, you know, where you're watching Daniel Tiger, and he's stomping his feet, and he's mad, and he's talking back to his mom. And they're basically teaching the doctrine that your parents are stupid. They don't know what they're talking about. You're a two-year-old. You know more than them. And that two-year-old learns that doctrine. And guess what? It affects his behavior, doesn't it? I'm talking about from that all the way to us as adults, allowing ourselves to be constantly entertained by this. Let me give you one last story to help us put this into perspective. In 1936, a man named Charles Templeton professed Christ. And he began to go around as an evangelist and preach the gospel. And God greatly used him. It seemed like God was using him. In fact, people thought he's, you know, this guy's an amazing evangelist. In fact, he became friends with Billy Graham. So these guys were both evangelists preaching the gospel. In 1948, he entered into Princeton Theological Seminary. And if you remember the history of Princeton, in 1920, they gave up the inerrancy of Scripture, the authority of Scripture. So by 1948... Most of the professors still taught the Bible, but they didn't believe parts of the Bible. And so as, as Charles Templeton sat under that teaching, he began to distrust God's word. And then at the end of the day, he walked away from the faith in Jesus Christ completely. In fact, he wrote a memoir in 1996 called Farewell to God, My Reason for Rejecting the Christian Faith. And he recounted a conversation with Billy Graham during that time. And Templeton said this to Billy Graham. He said, Billy, it's simply not possible any longer to believe, for instance, in, in a biblical account of creation. The world was not created over a period of days, a few thousand years ago. It evolved over millions of years. It's not speculation. It's a fact. Billy Graham replied, I believe in the Genesis account of creation because it's in the Bible And I've discovered something in the ministry. When I take God at his word, when I proclaim it as the word of God, my preaching has power. When I stand on the platform and says, thus says the Lord, the Holy Spirit uses that word. And I've decided once and for all to accept the Bible as God's word. Charles Templeton did not heed the warning. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Bad doctrine, the bad doctrine, I should say, at that seminary, ruined his faith in Christ. Let me ask you this. Teenager, do you think that could happen to you? A young person, adult? Oh, no, not me. (laughs) Do not be deceived. Lee Strobel interviewed Charles Templeton when he was in his 80s. Lee Strobel asked him about Jesus. And so Charles Templeton, you know, started talking, oh yeah, he was such a moral person and he just, you know, waxed eloquently about Jesus and how, you know, he was taught so many wonderful things and all this. And, and then as they were kind of pressing a little bit more, at least Strobel was pressing a little bit more, Charles Templeton, his voice began to crack and he said, well, I, they began to cry, I miss him, speaking of Jesus. And with that, tears came into his eyes. He turned his head, looked downward. This is being read from Lee Strobel's account. He lifted his hand to shield his face from him. His shoulders bobbed and he wept. And there was a few awkward moments. Lee Strobel says that he waved his hand dismissively. Charles Templeton did. And then he said, enough of that. Charles Timberton died as an unbeliever with a head full of knowledge but a soul that was lost. He did that happened because he was deceived by false doctrine. Verse 33, do not be deceived. The influence of bad doctrine is going to ruin your morals. Wake up and oh, how our country, oh, how we need this. Wake up. We're like a bunch of drunk people who don't see reality. Wake up from your drunken stupor. As is right, do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. How are you being influenced by false doctrine? I think the last question I'd like to ask us this morning is, do you believe? Do you believe in the resurrection so much that you're willing to each day sacrifice your rights, your desires, your life for Christ and his gospel. Let's pray.